Welcome to the Catholic Voices podcast, where we tell the church's story and train others to do the same. I'm your host, Brendan Alejandro Thompson. And for today's episode, we are talking about finding the language of grace with Father Christopher Jamison. It's a real pleasure. I've, I've known, known of Father Christopher, but we've not really met and spoken. So I'm looking forward to, to having, a, uh, having our second Catholic Voices episode and podcast with him. A pleasure to be with you, Father Christopher. It's my pleasure to be part of Catholic Voices, which, as we'll be discussing, I was involved in setting up in its early years. So I'm delighted to be working with you again. Yes, exactly. I was a, I was a latecomer. I actually was never involved with Catholic Voices at the beginning, so I'm someone who uh, um, admired it from afar and its insights into civil communication, you know, principles, and has given me confidence. So grateful to the founders, the very public founders, Austin and Jack, but also those who helped and supported in many ways. The kind of yes, yourself I acting was as their patron, kind of, and I was their kind of clerical front man. I was the the clerical patron, so that the hierarchy had somebody they could attack or blame if it went wrong. But of course, it didn't go wrong. So I was fine. <laughs> no, there's always the, the funny story. I, I tell slightly glibly when we do our, our, our kind of flagship workshop, I say, you know, it went really well. You know, it was only meant to be for the papal visit. But the bishops were like, you know, this is great. We don't have to pay for it. And it makes us look good. So, you know, please do carry on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Everybody was delighted with it. And it was very bold of uh, Jack and Austin to imagine what it could be and to, to work at it. And it was a, a, a wonderful experience. Its, its origins really started with Jack's work uh, on the Da Vinci Code and the film of that, which Jack had this brilliant insight as the comms man for Opus Dei. He's, instead of going around condemning the Da Vinci Code film, he saw it as the opportunity to, to explain the apostate to people. Now, this was pretty bold, really, um, because lots of other apostate people said, oh, God, it's a travesty of what the apostate is, the novel's so bad, and whatever. But he saw the opposite, and he seized it. And I remember being one of the people he asked, this was before Catholic Voices started, but he asked somebody to be part of the team who would respond to the press over the Da Vinci Code film. And... I remember sitting there in this preview cinema, you know, in Leicester Square. It was, it was a big cinema they were using for the preview. And there were the press huddled around the door. And they all wanted instant reaction. And I knew they would. So I'd been slightly thinking of my instant reaction. And so I came out and I, they said, well, Father, what do you think of it? And I said, well, it's, it's like James Bond without the gadgets. Rather boring, really. And <laughs> they did fall about laughing at that point. And uh, um, it, it sort of took off from there, really, namely to disarm people who think you're going to be very critical and condemnatory of, of something like that. And Jack then took that concept of using controversy as an opportunity to explain rather than an opportunity to defend uh, and to become defensive. So it was, um, it was great fun. And then from that, then I got involved in Catholic Voices. And it's great to hear that, that insight because <coughs> I stand here as someone who has inherited, in a sense, the crystallized wisdom of those experiences. So I, I can't count the amount of times I've said controversy is an opportunity to share the church's story. Yeah. So that that you've said that <coughs> organically, yeah. As because that's that's difficult when you start with a with a project to try and get a common language and yes. framework for mission yeah. and how that pass on the principles of civil communication. And of course, you'll you'll know one of my great mentors, the third founder of Catholic Voices, who's often forgotten, Kathleen Griffin. She's gone to yes, gone to God indeed. now, but. 
you know, the, the work of all of them, I think the real confidence, because there's, it's, we'll talk a little bit about your book later, but there's um, something I, I smiled at within it, which is, was talking about basically, you know, catastrophizing Catholics. And I think if that was true back, you know, whenever it was 2004 or five, when the film came out, it's even truer now, you know, amplified by social media, the sense of oh. how do I respond? Is it a reaction or a response? And something of Catholic Voices' method of reframing to to help kind of slow down, you know, to not just to have an initial reaction, an, ide- an ideological reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that whole business of reframing, of course, was at the, the heart of it. And, and trying to persuade Catholics that <clears throat> the best way to engage with people is to go to where they are, to understand them, and not to be defensive but to accept a great deal of what they're saying is probably true. And so to, to start start there and then explain that, that that's been um, that's been a joy. And the, the papal visit, of course, was the great opportunity to do this because of the amount of negative publicity before the Pope got here was incredible. But what's really interesting is I was also involved in working with the media over the 2012 Olympics. I had the bizarre title of chaplain to the Olympic media which was a role they'd never had before. So you could make of it what you wanted, but it basically meant I was based in the media center in the Olympic Park, which was a huge, huge center in the Olympic Park. And um, the, 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 the same pattern evolved. Namely, the Olympics was going to be a disaster. And then once the Olympics started, everybody said, isn't it wonderful? And so I've come to realize that there is a media narrative around big national events, which is, isn't it badly organized? It's going to be a disaster. The event begins and everybody says, isn't it wonderful? And it, 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 that same pattern seems to be around all big national events. I've never met a big national event where they said, it's being beautifully organized, the government's doing it so well, and we're all going to enjoy it. People don't talk about the media. Of course, that isn't much of a story is the problem. So the media have to have uh, a, a narrative around what's going wrong with the preparation. But then once people start enjoying it, they go with the popular narrative, which is, excuse me, we're all enjoying this. And so you get that repeated pattern I've discovered. It wasn't just around the papal visit. So my, my involvement with the Olympics, I said, oh, hello, hang, hang on, I've, I've heard this narrative before. Yeah, and I've always admired, um, we've mentioned Jack, I often describing, describe him as having invincible enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, that's very good. And, you know, because there is a, there is a say, a, a, a crest, the wave of a, a sea crest for these opportunities. So it is an opportunity and there's a window that goes. So, you know, if we were still having a myth-busting the Da Vinci Code group, slightly irrelevant. And yes. So the papal visit came and... This Jack and Austin saw the controversy as an opportunity not to catastrophize, but to to take the opportunity and to train a group of of lay Catholics. Um, what was your experience of the papal visit? We've been thinking about the papal visit recently because of the the death of the late Holy Father Pope Benedict, and so many of us are fondly remembering those yes. those days. So I was twenty and I was a young person in the piazza at Westminster, you know, really really close to him, and remember my own impressions of him changing as kind of, you know, from God's Rottweiler to German Shepherd. And what was your recollections of that time? Well, uh, I had just come off being Abbot of Worth and I just started working at Eccleston Square for the Bishop's Conference. And I'd also um, been involved in helping set up Catholic Voices very much in the background. 
And so I, under both headings, I was invited often to be a spokesperson for the church in various media and on various occasions. And I was struck by a sort of double narrative that was going on. There was the anti-papal visit narrative, um, which was strongly uh, promoted by Peter Tatchen and others, um, which was that the state had no right to give a state visit to this terrible man and a lot of criticism around the church in general about child abuse and so on, because that story was becoming more and more evident. And then there was another narrative, which was um, the narrative that was often um, quietly going on, which was, oh, my mother's thrilled by the papal visit. Yeah, I was brought up Catholic too. Isn't it wonderful? You <laughs> can come out the woodwork. That's right. And so there was, you know, and a lot of the media presenters, they're sort of, Catholic education or, you know, their Catholic parents or whatever came to the fore. And I found them very positive. They were very professional. They asked me the difficult questions. But it was never aggressive questioning. The aggressive stuff came from Peter Tatchell and others. Um, and I have to say I have great respect for Peter Tatchell. He, he, he's, he's a man who does his homework on a project. But uh, he, he's, and he leads a very, very ascetical life. I mean, this is a man who's not in it for himself. <clears throat> He's genuinely committed to causes. And I've um, sort of had to engage with him a couple of times and find him always very polite and respectful, but quite aggressive behind questioning, if you know what I mean, respectful but aggressive questioning. And um, so I did a public debate. Austin Ivory and I did a public debate with him in the Conway Hall which is, you know, the, the cathedral of English humanism in, in Red Lion Square here in London. So there the audience was full of a mixture of supporters of Catholic voices in the minority and a lot of very sort of publicly supportive uh, anti-Pope people in the audience too. So it was a bit of a bear pit, um, but it, it went quite well. But Peter Tatchell deployed his arguments. Um, and then I found myself... Um, engaging them again on live television. It was Sky who had, I think, the, the quite foolish idea of putting Peter Tatchell in Millbank, me on um, the, the green outside parliament, you know, what's it called, that, that green space where they do all the interviews, St. Stephen's Green. And then um, Anna Botting, the interviewer, was in Glasgow in Bella Houston Park where the Pope was celebrating mass. And when they explained in advance they wanted to do the setup like that, I said, well, why don't you put Peter and I in the same studio? You know, we, we won't come to blows. We, we, we'll disagree strongly, but that's fine. We've done that before. And uh, they said, no, 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 it would look much better if we had them in the three separate places. So I turned up to um, the green, College Green, I think it's called, isn't it? And, and stood there with this bored-looking television person who said, stand here. Look down the, look down the camera. Here's an earpiece. I got this tiny earpiece to put in my ear on the end of a wire, and I could not see Peter Tatchell or Anna or anything. I just had to look down the tube of this camera, which is extremely disconcerting, as you know. Um, so, I, Anna Botting, you know, invited Peter Tatchell to say his piece. So he said the same arguments he'd said in the debate, you know, again. Only I didn't hear anything. I couldn't hear a thing from Peter Tatchell's end. So I. I had to make a very snap decision. I said to Anna Potting, I said, Anna, um, I'm terribly sorry, but I didn't hear anything of what Peter Tatchell said. 
Uh, but I don't need to because he always says the same things. And I took a punt that he'd said the same thing because I knew that that's how he tended to operate. He, he had one set of arguments for a cause and he stuck to them. And so I then proceeded to refute what he'd what I'd not heard him say. And of course, it was accurate. It was what he'd said. And I refuted what, what I'd not heard him saying. And um, that was quite amusing, really. And looking back on the video of it, even more amusing, too, because even Peter Tatchell's starting to smile slightly um, at the fact that I hadn't heard him, but was still dealing with what he'd said. And we then had um, a rather complicated argument, because still, the technicalities of it were quite tricky. But I did manage to sort of get onto the front foot after that and, and addressed, um, you know, some of the, the arguments. Um, it was, uh, that was, I think, my most engaging memory of the papal visit was actually having this very bizarre three-way conversation. Um, but already by, the by that moment, um, the Pope, in his initial talk, had already started to win over hearts and minds. He'd, he'd referred to a whole series of English saints, um, not not just Catholic ones, but but Florence Nightingale and others, and you know, great English Christian um, builders of, of British culture, uh, and had met the Queen in Edinburgh, you know, and and so it was already starting to turn. But there was always in the background the anti-papal visit group who you you had to address. Um, but I found that after that, my other favourite moment was being on the Today program with James Naughty who had a representative of um, the National Secular Society on opposite me. And um, James Naughty gave this guy from the National Secular Society, this was by the last day, this was the Saturday. So he gave this guy from the National Secular Society a really hard time. And I didn't have to. So there was a kind of switch, really. That by that stage, everybody was behind it. And even James Naughty was you know, very critical of what the National Secular Society was saying. So. It was it, you could see that shift going on, and by the time he left, as you know, the Prime Minister um, David Cameron said, "You know, you've given the nation a lot to think about. Thank you for coming." And I think the politicians, especially, will will always remember his address to Parliament, which I still think, if you read the text, is a masterpiece of reasonable, thoughtful, incisive, quite brief analysis of why faith and reason need each other especially in the realm of politics, referring, of course, obliquely to the fact that, you know, Hitler was elected, didn't mention Hitler, but it was clearly referenced, that Hitler was democratically elected, a fact of which he was acutely conscious. And he said, if, if social consensus is what decides what's right and wrong, then you have a real problem. And he was sort of referred to that and saying, you know, faith can, can call reason back to another set of criteria other than just social consensus that tells you what's right and wrong. So it's a very important speech and as relevant as ever. Yeah, so we'll probably put it in the show notes. It's well worth going back some of those speeches, particularly the <coughs> Westminster Hall. You know, religion is not a problem for legislators to solve, but a vital contributor to the national conversation. Yeah, and I love the, the story with um, Peter Tatchell in terms of what it can teach us about communication. Because I think often when one is thinking about communicating as a Catholic, the phrase that's often used or the the realm it lives in is called apologetics yeah. you know this kind of defense of the, of the catholic faith and i think sometimes it can have a very 19th century coat very kind of triumphalistic and and it's in a way in an unfortunate way i think peter tatchell embodied that kind of um that approach yeah. similar to apologetics as in you've got these kind of very staid learned 
responses yeah. and lines. Question A is asked, question B is the response. Yeah. And so how does one respond really to the person that's in front of you? Mm -hmm. and So th that's the difficulty people often have with a Catholic Voices workshop because they're expecting that kind of, I want very clear questions, here are clear questions, here are the clear answers. But actually what's required is a transformation of the self. Yes, and you have to be very focused within yourself and prayerfully focused to actually respond to someone like that who is, as I said, he's asking aggressive questions but not in an aggressive way. But perhaps hard to make that distinction, but I think in his case it's very real. Um, but also you have to, I said that I refuted his arguments, but also I was conscious of needing to reframe them and constantly trying to reframe the argument towards the positive nature of the visit, namely not simply saying this is why your criticism of the visit is wrong, but 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 reframing it saying here is why this visit is a benefit for the, for the nation. And that was, you know, saying to them, well, the British government seems to think this is worth doing because there are so many places where the Holy See and the British government converge in their values and in their work in developing countries uh, and in certain fundamental moral attitudes. So, you know, it was trying to get that message out as opposed to saying, you know, this man has done you know, bad things and has not dealt with the child abuse crisis. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about, you know, he was in the Hitler Youth and so on. And so trying to re uh, gently knocking those aside, but at the same time then trying to say, but this is why this is a positive thing. Let's focus on why this is a positive for the country. Um, and that, that takes quite a lot of um, practice, I think, to be able to do that. But once you get into the stream of it, actually it becomes a natural response. So it's fair to say you've become a kind of over the years, if not before, certainly a student of communication yeah. and learning in various <laughs> ways, whether it's kind of legacy media, right, you know, on the media, through your writing of various books, you know, kind of commissioning this um, uh, series for the, was it for the BBC? For the BBC, yeah. Was it, was it called The Monastery, wasn't it? Just called The Monastery, yeah. The and monastery. it was produced by Tiger Aspect, of course, at that time and still are a top production company. So what's been your what's been the lessons you've learned about communication as you you know as these ideas have kind of you know germinated formed crystallized through the various kind of books and stuff what is it what is it what has it taught you or I think the f the first thing is that you can't deal with the media as a block mm. I've I've discovered there is actually no such thing as the media there like are only, the church yeah well, like like the church indeed there is only um, individual media television radio digital and so on. Uh, and then within each of those media, there are individual production companies, and within those production companies, individual people. And then most importantly, too, when it comes to television and radio, there are commissioners uh, on the part of the broadcaster who commission a program for broadcast from a production company. So I, I, all those moving parts, the key is to find the bits of those moving parts that you trust where have I got trustworthy collaborators among commissioners? Where have I got trustworthy collaborators among program producers? Uh, and within those production companies, who were the directors um, that I trust? And so you, you, you've got all those, it's, it takes a while to understand just how many moving parts there are in producing a, a television or radio program. And you need to understand the different parts and then you need to Find the people in those parts that you trust. And after, it doesn't take you very long to realize this is a trustworthy person 
who I believe, because they're always going to say things to you like, oh, Father, you know, we, we want to show you the Catholic Church in a good light, and of course we wouldn't want to ridicule them or whatever. They all say that. So you have to find out the ones who really mean it. Mm. Um, and then you, you have to try to um, persuade them that you wish to be a partner in the production, not merely a performer in their performance. And that's where it gets interesting in terms of trust. Will you guarantee in your contract that I can preview this program before it's locked? Because there's this thing of a program gets locked, and after it's locked, it's extremely expensive to change it. So before it's broadcast, it's, it's locked. And you need to say, I want you to put in writing that I can preview this program before it's locked, and that you will make appropriate changes uh, if we agree to them. Now, you can never get editorial control. You, you don't even want to begin by asking for editorial control. Um, I can tell can't, um, videos and whatever where, you know, the Catholic Church got complete editorial control. On the whole, they're quite boring. Because <laughs> the Catholic Church describing itself to itself, well, you know, fine, we can do it. But it's much more interesting to work with someone who's not in the Catholic Church and to get, you know, wider angles and different views and whatever. But if you can find the person who's prepared to not give you editorial control, but make you a partner in the editorial process up to a limited point, and they'll always push back. But just say, look, I just want to preview it and comment. Because then you've got the human interaction says, well, that bit's not quite right. You know, If you can get that, then you will, you'll sail through and you'll be fine, and you'll get the kind of program that we got. You know, So I just learned enough very quickly about that production process in the monastery to get some of that written in. And the people were fine. They said, yes, of course. Of course, we want you to be happy with it. And as one of them said, they delivered a great line. They said, look, it's not an interesting television program to show that monks are idiots who live in a complete fantasy world because that's what everybody already thinks. The interesting program is to show that you are human people leading a very worthwhile and interesting way of life. And so I thought, yeah, well, that's great. Now we're, we're on the same page here. So it was getting inside some of the technicalities of that. And of course, a book is completely different. Because you do, you know, you, you are much more in control of it. Although if you've got a good editor, the editor will force you to do what, uh, isn't it Philip Larkin who said when you're writing poetry, you have to shoot your little darlings. Namely, you have to cut out some of your favorite lines to make the whole um, more coherent. And you do need an editor who'll do that to say, look, I'm sorry, you, you, you clearly have enjoyed writing that paragraph, but it doesn't fit. Um, you know, so you, you, you need an editor like that. But you are much more in control of, um, of the writing of it. Because a book has a penetration that a television program doesn't have. You never know where a book is going to end up. And the letters you get back from having written a book are undoubted, is some, is, is undoubtedly some of the most rewarding aspects of writing books. So for me, two, the, the two previous books I, I've written, um, I got letters from people on death row in America that completely uh, astonished me. And they wrote very movingly about how the, m my books had, had helped them. I got two letters from two people in death row. And um, it was uh, made you realize that the book is, uh, you have been given the grace to write the book, but you have written it for other people. Um, and you don't know how they're going to react. You really don't. 
and you don't know where it's the, the point about the penetration is you don't know where it's going to end up and if you'd said to me it's going to end up touching the heart of somebody on death row I never could have imagined that you know if you'd said to me what's the most strange place you think it might end up um, I never would have guessed that so but I have discovered subsequently of course that prisoners are people with a lot of time on their hands and who do have access to libraries in a way they don't have access to televisions um, and they are very thoughtful people as a result um, and have a great deal of insight about their own brokenness and about what helps them so you know I, I've come to realize that prisoners' responses to books is, is something of great value. And in fact, the very first person to respond to my latest book was somebody in prison. So there it was again, you know, um, this extraordinary thing. And you, you think the whole time of Matthew 25, you know, when I was in prison, you visited me. And I've come to realize that writing a book can be a kind of way of visiting somebody in prison. And I think that's a really good segue for after the break to, to discuss really the breakthrough of grace, of finding the language of grace and... Um, and your book um, on, on the subject, so talking about prisoners. But yeah, just kind of two things that um, I'm, I'm, he I'm hearing from what you're saying. One, which is a lesson that Catholic Voices taught me, which is I think you do tend to think in quite macro terms. You hear a word like church or media, and there's a story that you tell yourself about it or a, a frame to kind of use the language of Catholic Voices. All of the assumptions and memories and experiences that conjure up an image or an association and affect the way that you behave as, mm. as, as a result. And one of the things that the Catholic Voices training did for me was to say, you know, media, Jack would would tell these stories about how if he was doing badly or he was bombing, you know, one of the interviews would be like, oh, no, if you said it like this, it'd be much more interesting. Like, he said, well, why would he help me? He says, well, it's not a very interesting show if he just destroys you. Yes, it is. But, you know, you don't want to be known as that kind of person who just some people do. You know, there are some people who aren't looking for common ground. They're just looking for, you know, a kind of scalp. So we need to be, have the time. So is that, that interesting about prisoners having the time to, to think and ha being forced into that space of interiority and to really to yeah. break open these, these, these words like media or church and what do they mean? And the other thing, I guess, just before we, we break really is what a word that comes out of what you're saying is, is tension. Mm -hmm. So if we, when we want to tell our own story, often we forget tension and tension is... You know, tension is a, is the real heart of a story. There's no really good story without tension. Yeah, and the, the word I like to use is jeopardy. That I think even better than tension is there needs to be some jeopardy in the story. Um, I've come to realize for it to be interesting. And that's where the Catholic Church producing stuff about the Catholic Church can be really boring because there's no jeopardy. Yeah. And so you, because the jeopardy is the tension that keeps you on the edge of your seat. You know, what's going to happen next, you know? And, uh, oh, that's a really interesting. That's quite a tough point. I wonder how they're going to respond to that. And I think it's that's, that's, where, that's where the real interest of, of um, you know, big media, television, radio comes from. Um, yeah. So with, with that in mind, after the break, we're going to be looking at how the, the ultimate tension, grace breaking into, yeah. a, into a fallen, sinful world. Indeed. So let's come back after the break to discuss uh, Christopher Jamison's book, Finding the Language of Grace. So 
Welcome back to the Catholic Voices podcast, and we're here with Father Christopher Jamison. And I would love, Father Christopher, to talk about your book, your most recent book. It came out in September 22, and it's called Finding the Language of Grace. So give us a, a kind of short synopsis. What are you trying to achieve with the book? What's, a, what's the book about? I set out many years ago to write a book about grace to make Christian understanding of grace accessible because it's such an important uh, part of Christian faith. But the books about it tend to be rather technical. And after struggling to write this book for a very long time, I realized it was kind of impossible to write for various reasons we could come back to. And separately from that, <clears throat> I said, I think I'd like to write a book about language. And what prompted that was the decline in the quality of public language that we're experiencing at the moment, much of it driven by social media, where people can say things that are truly unspeakable, but they speak them. And there's this decline of, of the way we speak in public. And I thought there's a book to be written about language, and I am by training a linguist. And I've always loved the, the technicalities of language and of how we communicate. And then I had a light bulb moment when I realized, hang on, I could write a book about the language of grace. And that there is there are ways of speaking that are disgraceful and ways of speaking that are graceful. And I realized that I could write my book about grace if I focused on the language of grace. And so that was its origin. So it, it, it describes what grace is. Uh, and then it goes on to say other examples of how uh, various kinds of language, reading, writing, speaking, listening, how they can be channels of grace or indeed channels of disgrace. So that's the basic outline of the book, a simple description of grace and how language can then be a vehicle for that. I'm reminded of a, of a quote by um, Blaise Pascal. He said, um, all of humanity's problems stem from um, people's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Yes. <laughs> and so we were speaking before about prisoners, but I guess in a sense what they've got is, is time. If what yeah. Twitter mm. and other forms of social media allow is a kind of unfiltered yeah. expression of your thoughts... And on the other hand, writers say that the art of writing is editing and that kind of crystallization. Yeah. You know, so there's there's something to, to be said there. And one of the things I really appreciated about the book, in a sense, is the kind of the, the practicalness of it. It's saying that this is something that's it's not just theoretical, that we can we, we ought to practice this. So it's saying to take the time to kind of cultivate this language of grace. So you give different um, exercises, so like, you know, language exercises, like practicing gratitude, listening exercises, you know, that kind of sensitivity to others and spiritual direction, speaking exercises, keeping a, a language diary, a reading exercise, Lectio Divina, reading out loud, you know, extended reading. What's been the reaction as people have spoken to you about the book? Like, I think, because it's an interesting call to, to do that kind of, you know, almost like, a, not, it's, not, it's not quite a program, but there are elements that are programmatic to yeah. it. You know, that you want people to kind of be changed in a sense by reading this. So the reaction to it has surprised me. Um, I, I, I thought and I still think it's a much more niche book than the previous two I'd written. The previous two were about sanctuary and happiness, which as editors will say, well, you know, those are two corners of the market where people really will buy books about finding sanctuary and finding happiness. So this one, I thought, this is much more niche. People don't go around 
saying, oh, I really wish I could, you know, find the language of grace. They don't talk like that. So I thought this is going to be much more niche. But what has surprised me is how many people have said, um, I can really identify with what you're saying. And what then often follows is, have you read this poet? Have you thought about it in the context that one person said to me, in the context of contemporary narcissism? And that one blew me away. Uh, and, and so people have come and started a conversation about it. And so what I seem to have done in this book is I seem to have started a conversation and another person said to me, I get the impression this is only the first of a two-part book. And I thought, I hadn't thought of that, but I think maybe you're right. And it seems that I've written a book about language that has started a conversation. And I think, well, that's rather obvious. Because if you, if you talk about language, then conversation's going to flow. Whereas the previous book was a little bit like saying, here is what the, the monastic tradition says about this topic. Now, that's not a conversation starter, whereas this is a conversation starter. And I've been surprised by how it has started good conversations. And I look forward to more of them. Um, and I think that's why it feels a bit like a part one, because I think I'm going to gather up some of these conversations and then see where that goes next. Yeah, so it really hits on a nerve of, I guess, the reason that's, that what it feels like in Catholic Voices, these trying to create common ground conversations, feels like it's something of the moment and very needed. I was really interested by a, a phrase within the book which you described communication could almost become a kind of form of social action, yes. kind of healing or reconciling properties of communication. So can we, can we just reflect on that for a moment? What's been your experience? Because I think people often... They create this, you know, false dichotomy between, say, words on the one hand and action. Yes. You know, it's kind of one or the other. You know, it's oh, only yeah. witness or it's only words. And but there is such a, you know, we are body and soul. We're integrated. And so what 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 did we mean? What did we mean by communi communication can almost become a form of social action, not to replace, but it has a different role? Well, I think you see that in dispute resolution, don't you? I mean, so many disputes actually um require good words to resolve them. And the person who can find the formula, often people say, you know, looking for a peace formula in a big international dispute or even in a, a neighborly dispute. Now, there are elements that are not reducible just to language. But if you can find the language which brings a person to a new place, and if you can find language that brings different people to, to new places, um, then you're beginning to create a new reality. And I think we minimize, in that we're talking about words and actions, you know, actions speak out of the words. It's, I think we minimize the capacity for language to create new realities. And the way that um, we describe something, I mean, my, my favorite example came from um, my course on linguistics in my language degree. You know, there's, that's the, the science of linguistics. And one of them is um, philology how, um, and semantics. And so, we, you know, we're having this lecture on semantics. And the lecturer said, let me uh, explain to you what semantic load is. So here is an example of two phrases, each of which has a different semantic load. Phrase number one, the government has stopped providing free school milk. Phrase number two, the Tories have taken the milk out of the mouths of our kiddies. 
<laughs> and the contrast between the two, he said, it's exactly the same statement with completely different semantic load. But of course, one is inflammatory and the other's, you know, much calmer. And so you see there that actually, to, the, which of those two you choose will shape the reality of your conversation and of your relationships. And so you can choose to use language in a way that calms the situation or inflames it. And it seems to me there's been an increase in inflammatory language because it's unfiltered through social media. But then there's also the, the issue which the book also deals with. The second way that language creates reality is, for me, the use of the word grace itself. Namely, if there is a dimension of life, which is this invisible dimension, sometimes called metaphysical, sometimes called transcendent, which in the book I call the, the, the dimension of grace. If that reality is there, but I no longer have a word for it, then the chances are that reality will decrease in my life. In other words, if I don't exercise that dimension, it will wither away. The same is true of our muscles. We know that our muscles are actually hidden from us, if you think about it. And, you know, we're now being told if we don't exercise, those muscles will shrivel up. And that's not good for us. And I say the same about grace. There is this hidden dimension, which if we don't exercise it, it will shrivel up. And one of the ways that we exercise it is by talking about it. Because grace is something that can be communicated through, in the Christian tradition, the word, the word made flesh. And so we need to be get better at the language of grace. And that's what the book's exploring is, look, there is this hidden dimension. And that refers to the, the subtitle, namely rediscovering transcendence. And I think there is a, a, a connection between the decline in public discourse and the failure to acknowledge transcendence as a real dimension of life. Because if you have a sense of that the other person is more than what's sitting in front of you visibly, the other person is not only body but also soul, it seems to me you treat them with much more respect and you, you have a heart for them. Uh, and, and so there's a whole nexus here of the way we use language actually keeps a certain reality alive. And if we don't use the language, the reality will die in the individual's life. So I, there, there's two examples, really, of where words speak louder than actions in some, in, in some instances. And I think we need to redress the balance of that, especially in, in, in um, the church, because one of the things the church is good at is naming and celebrating this reality. And it's like there's an outbreak of this every Christmas, isn't there? You know, every Christmas, the church um, society borrows the church's language for a brief period of time to celebrate all that they most value in life. Their families, uh, good neighborliness, relations, reaching out to those in need, all of that, you know, goodwill to, to everybody. And, and they borrow the church's language to do that, which I'm quite happy with. I mean, I'm delighted they borrow it. Um, I don't go around saying, isn't it terrible the real meaning of Christmas is gone? I said, isn't it fantastic that people still want to borrow the church's language for those for that week? And, and I'm thrilled by it. So we're, 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 we need to become more self-conscious about the language we use as a vehicle for God's grace.
Mm. There's so much there. And it's not only at Christmas, is it? Because one thinks of the transcendent, you might say, language people even use to describe yoghurt. This yoghurt is heavenly and, <laughs> yes. and this, this biscuit is, you know, saintly or yeah. whatever. So yeah, I often yeah. think about that. So it's, it's kind of getting to those liminal experiences, right? And yeah. yeah, and there's a lot in your book about, say, a critique of scientism, you know, the kind of reduction yes. of all forms of knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. I love this sense of the word being creative. And I remember n a number of years ago when it was, we were in preparation for the, the synod on, on youth and vocational discernment. And I think you'd given a talk for Catholic Voices in which you described a study. And my recollection of the study was something along the lines that children, that the study revealed that children have spiritual experiences, but they don't have the processes, the words, the tools, the signs, the rituals to be able to, to process that. Yeah. So these experiences, like the crest of a wave, they come and they go. Yeah. And we're not able to kind of mine the gold out of those experiences. So how does, in the word that is creative, we are helping people in a sense to process what, what, what is in fact happening, these, these kind of transcendent, this experience that touches touches the transcendent. Yeah, and, and um, in the book I talk about Peter Tyler's work on... Um, the, the legend of the Holy Grail being the classic example of this when the young Percival stumbles upon the Grail and has no idea what's going on and completely messes up his first encounter with the divine. Um, and there's a lot of young people who I think are having that, that they encounter the divine and the transcendent and they haven't got the language to talk about it. And the language is really rather important. And that's what the, the legend makes clear was that at the critical moment, Percival said nothing. And that was a mistake. He should have said something about this, even if only to ask the question, who does the grail serve? Which is the question he should have asked. You know, who does this cup serve? Um, so I, I, I think what's interesting there, though, is that the language we're using at the moment, I believe, in, in our discussion at this point, is accessible to everybody. And I always try and write books that are trying to show the Christian tradition made available to everybody. But there is also a very fine, explicitly Christian theology behind this, it seems to me. And I try and talk about that at the beginning of the book. Now, I stick my neck out a bit. And one reviewer has also al already said, I'm probably pushing my luck on this. And it was a good theological reviewer, you know. And I, but I make no apologies for pushing my luck on it because I think it kind of helps people understand what uh, original sin and grace are. And it's, so if you're going to talk about grace, you've got to have some understanding of the Christian theology of original sin. And I say original sin is a collapse of trust. So I tell the Adam and Eve story as um, <clears throat> trust collapsing in the Paradise Garden. And, you know, you can kind of work that out for yourself or reading the book how that collapse of trust works. But by the end of it, Adam and Eve don't trust God, don't trust each other and, and don't trust themselves. And so then the story of the Bible becomes God restoring people's trust in God, each other and themselves. And, and that seems to me a kind of simple piece of Christian theology to say, look, if, if that's what original sin is, then this is what salvation is. Salvation is the constant work of God to restore trust and the people of Israel and indeed the followers of Christ constantly failing to trust. You know, the classic example being, you know, in the wanderings in the desert, in the Exodus, you know, complaining to Moses about why the hell did you bring us out of this ghastly place, you know, and then saying we much preferred being back in the flesh pots of Egypt. And the sort of collapse of trust on, the, on a vast scale among the people of Israel 
Um, they can't trust God to lead them to the promised land. And, and so the, the, the constant story of the Bible then is about overcoming the original catastrophe, the original sin. And it seems to me that's the architecture of, of Christian theology. Now, as I said, people will say, well, that's not an adequate description of, of original sin. But I think it's, it's enough of an insight to humanize this story and not make original sin just like uh, a sort of inherited dirt that we've inherited, you know, which, you know, you have to clean it off the soul with baptismal water. That the water cleansing stuff doesn't help with that either. Um, but rather, it, it's this, this collapse of our ability to trust. And if you look around the world today, what is happening is there are more and more collapses of trust. And that was one of the things that motivated me in the book was, you know, the, the Capitol Hill riots in Washington. I mean, that was a staggering collapse of trust. You know, here was the world's um, greatest democracy, you know, and I'd be happy to stand by that claim. I think the U.S. is the world's greatest democracy in so many ways, where a whole bunch of people absolutely blankly refused to the point of violence to trust this democratic process. And you think, this is really very serious. Because if that kind of global societal trust breaks out, and we've seen it again, now there's been a copycat in Brazil. And you think, you know, if this catches on, this is really deeply damaging, and it's going to come back and bite us all. And so I think that the work, therefore, of restoring trust and maintaining trust through gracious language becomes a social action for me. And the church needs to be much better at it. And of course, social action that feeds the hungry is really important. But I think we may come to realize too late that the social action of gracious language to sustain trust, we may realize too late we let that go. And that the church's role in that is really important. Because we're one of the few groups, one of the few communities in our society that believes in the power of the word with a capital W. And, you know, the word made flesh is our stock in trade. And we should take that really seriously. One of the fascinating elements to, to pick up that theme of original sin. So how can a, a concept like original sin shine light into the experiences of other people so that <laughs> grace can enter in? Yep. And you connect in your book the experience of this kind of sense of isolation and loneliness. So yes. you're, you describe how when people are young, often the experience that they have when they're very young, they often don't remember a positive experience, but sometimes I was lost in the supermarket or yep. it's a kind of a loss of love. Yep. And so I was very interested about the way in which some of the, the, the doctrines kind of connecting in with, with the, that sense of people's lived experience and saying how can they, how, rather than original sin is a truth I assent to, of course that's, that's true and you know, it's just, we're not trying to create something exhaustive, but how is this helping to shine light on people's experience? And so therefore, the, the Christian doctrine is something that's like, wow, I'd never thought of that. And so yeah. you look at, you know, the kind of Capitol Hill riots, you look at, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of sense of what role does original sin have in helping us to understand racism, yes. for example. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's a huge, once, um, it seems to me that if we can read the story of Genesis and the fall in that way. And when I've explained to people, many people say, I just never thought of that before. They do say it kind of opens up. And again, it opens up a conversation. And it starts to become a, um, 
an insight that you can use to look at the world around you. And so when you see something like the Capitol riot, you, it's not just a question of analyzing the politics and who said what and what was the role of the president and whatever. It's actually saying, no, what's going on here is a profound expression of human brokenness, that, that there is a total collapse of trust. And this is really serious. And that, you know, the message of Christ and the message of, of the whole of the Bible is providing you with the means to restore trust and a language with which to address that, that question. And so the fight really is between forms of, the, of open conversation versus closed conversation. And I think a lot has to do yep. with the kind of attitude. So one of the things in Catholic Voices we often talk about, say, the principles of civil communication. It's in a sense, that, you know, what are the attitudes that, le- that will help people enter into conversation openly? One of the things I often remark on in our trainings is the presupposition of St. Ignatius, you know, led for people who are going through the spiritual exercises. Let it be presupposed that a good Christian ought to put a more positive <laughs> interpretation on their neighbor's action than to condemn it. How much you know, digital bloodshed would be spared. (laughs) And of course, actually saying that I trust other people is, of course, a very fine expression of love. And I suppose that that's the second thing that's gone on in our society is, is the sentimentalization of love. I mean, the sentimentalization of love has always been there, you know, but it's now become that sentimental love has rather taken over. And so, you know, the notion that actually, um, Love is what's at play in this trust in our society, that actually learning to trust other people is learning to love them. That's sort of not part of the language at all. Um, Love is now more or less exclusively confined to my emotional connection with another human being or my emotional connection to my family. And while the connection to the family seems to me, you know, something needs to be strengthened, it seems as if the, the emotional connection to another person in this romantic love thing has rather taken over from love as being an action, a social action again. And, and I, I think that, that, again, we have a language that can, can sustain and build up that kind of loving trust, which, which I think, we, again, we, we need to work on. It's, I'm sure that some would say it's there in Catholic social teaching, um, but I, I think we need to find something a way of popularizing that Catholic social teaching, uh, which I don't think we've yet succeeded in doing. No. Although having said that, I'll add a footnote. The language of the common good has, of course, entered our public discourse in a way that's rather impressive. And it does come from Catholic social teaching. So the notion of promoting the common good, it unfortunately got a fairly bad reputation under the Cameron government in this country uh, with the big society notion, which didn't really take off. But there, there is, a seems to me, a role for promoting the common good as, as a loving, trusting way of building up our society. And that, of course, is really quite hard work because you keep bumping into the original sin, why should I trust you? And where there's been violent conflict, how do you restore trust when there's been a violent conflict? That is the triumph of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland to show that it can be done. But when you look at other situations around the world, you think, however, do we restore trust there? Uh, That is a real act of faith to think that can be done. And on that act of faith, on that that bombshell, um, I think that's all we have time for for today. So I thoroughly recommend um, Father Christopher's book, Finding the Language of Grace, Rediscovering Transcendence. Um, 
available on Amazon or other good booksellers. Um, and so I'm just really grateful, Father Christopher, for joining us for this Catholic Voices podcast as we've explored a little bit about about language, looking back at the the papal visit, and yeah, just to kind of end with a line because it's very it's it's it, it kind of sung to me, um, kind of what we're doing for for Catholic Voices. There was a line from the book which said. Um, Deep listening and sensitive speaking are the steps along the path to, you say consensus, but let's say common ground conversations. How can we continue to be kind of students, as the Holy Father is inviting us to do, you know, the students of discernment, of sensitive listening, so that we can help to re-knit the bonds of, of society, you know, because it, it is a fight. It's not, it's not a given. We have to fight for these open Absolutely. conversations. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Father Christopher. Thank you, Brendan.